Right, so uh, when you come to Christmas, uh, who here looks forward to Christmas? Be honest, you don't have to look forward to Christmas. Yeah, that's good. I, I look forward to Christmas. I really love the traditions that we get to make as families and, uh, and what goes on at Christmas. Sometimes, though, Christmas isn't the greatest time. Um, we were talking to friends this week, uh, or in the last couple of weeks, and, uh, and we, we heard that Christmas isn't always a great time. In fact, Christmas is a time where people get together and the fractures and the, the war seems to intensify. Um, and so the idea of peace at Christmas uh, is one that is really attractive. Um, and the desire for peace is one that is really attractive. Last week, uh, if you weren't here, last week I talked about um, peace and the fact that peace, ultimate peace, true peace, is actually peace with God. And the fact that God, in his great love, came and saw us as enemies and he actually reached out and said, I want peace with my enemies. Uh, that, that is humanity. Humanity, by the very fact and by their very nature, oppose God. That's what they want to do. Uh, but God in his kindness comes and shows a great demonstration of peace. Uh, Thomas Merton said it this way, We are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. Pause and think about that. We're not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. That sums it up really well. It was in relation last week to the absence of hostility. So I talked about one definition of peace, meaning uh, the, the absence of hostility. So the, the guns are down, the weapons are down, and there's no hostility. It's almost like the war has happened, uh, and there's peacekeepers in, and they're sort of keeping the peace. They're c- keeping the hostility away. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually peace within people. Would you agree with that? doesn't necessarily. Just because there's no evidence of war and things going on amongst people uh, doesn't mean that inside people there's still not a war going on. And this is the difference between peace that's lasting and peace that's temporary. So you've got peace that's temporary where you don't see any evidence of war, but really the air's thick, right? And you could slice it with a butter knife. <laughs> Uh, it would be tough going, but you could slice the air with a butter knife. That's the great mercy that there is no longer any hostility between a person and God when they completely accept that their sin makes them a great enemy of the holy God and indeed that God becomes an enemy to them. Love for life apart from God completely separates a person from God and makes them an enemy. And as we found last week, This God does not require you to repay him or seek your own way to peace. So we have a holy God, a righteous God, a big God, all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty. And he's actually got enemies in us because we oppose him, because we're against him, because we actually want to live life the way we want to live life. And that's called sin. But this God doesn't say, you need to go and do this, 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 and this, and then you'll be able to have peace with me. It's not like a repayment scheme where the, the enemy has to do all the right things to be able to come to God. No, God actually comes and he makes peace with us. But there's only one way, he says. It's narrow but open to all who'd be willing to submit. This God dies for his enemy so that there might be peace. This is the most crazy thing about the peace that God's, God brings, right? Because we're the enemy and he comes and dies for the enemy so that the enemy can come and be friends, so that the enemy can come and not just be friends, but actually be family. That's absolutely insane. 
And that's why the peace that Jesus brings is almost scandalous. It's not, but it's almost scandalous. There's a quote I, uh, I want to read from a guy called Peter Kreeft. And uh, he talks about the way that Jesus uh, comes and basically deals with the enmity between us and God. He says this, There too he did not use force, but made peace in the most surprising way by dying. He drained away war down on himself, like a sinkhole or a blotter. He made peace by making himself the universal victim, by suffering all the violence, all the war, all the aggression, all the hate and harm that the father of lies and of violence could fling at him, by doing nothing in return, by being meek as the slaughtered sheep. He was the meek who shall inherit the earth. By his meekness, he won the world and the authority to give its rule over to his disciples when the time was right. Can you see the difference between someone making peace by war and with weapons and someone making peace by dying? Two totally different, totally different uh, understandings of peace. However, the simple absence of hostility doesn't take this peace far enough. There's a difference between peace that outlasts and peace that simply doesn't. True peace goes far deeper than putting down of weapons. True peace reaches deep into the heart and soul of you and me, of men and women. It's to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Upon reaching peace with God, there's a positive forward movement in this peace. And that's where we'll head today. So the peace that comes with God is not meant to just stay within us. It's not just meant to be our peace that we sort of sit and go, yeah, this is really nice, peace with God. Peace, the peace that God brings actually has a forward momentum to it. And this is where we come to. It's in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible there, uh, can you open up to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. And most will know uh, that this is a sermon that Jesus preached. And it's on the Beatitudes. It's on the Beatitudes. And there's one particular Beatitude in verse 9. I invite you to read the rest at home, but, uh, but today we're just going to focus on this one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. Keep it open in front of you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, you can do a whole bunch of word searches and understandings about blessed. Um, from what I read, the, the sort of overarching meaning of being blessed means being happy in God. Being happy in God. And so the greatest happiness, the greatest blessedness that could come when you look at this verse is blessedness in peacemaking. But not only is there blessedness in peacemaking, there's also a promise. It says, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. You have to understand who Jesus is talking to and about here. When he was giving this sermon, he was not giving the world a means by which they should make political policies or some sweet hippie mantras, right? Blessed are the peace, man. Like, it's really, it's a nice idea. Uh, I asked my niece this morning, um, I said, what, what's the first thing you think of when you, when you hear the word peace? And she straight away, she's like, peace, like this. <laughs> uh, it's, it, like, it's a nice idea. I talked a little bit about it last week. It's a, it's a nice idea. But I don't think the way that we understand peace, nor being a peacemaker, is one uh, that maybe lines up with what Jesus actually says. It wasn't, it wasn't some policy that the government should, uh, should follow. No, 
when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, they were actually evidence that someone had a new heart. So these, the things that he was say, saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, and on and on they go. He was actually saying, these things are going to be evident in you when you have a new heart. You're going to want to be a peacemaker because you're a son of God. He didn't say, blessed are the peacemakers for, they, uh, for that will make them sons of God or daughters of God. Now, he wasn't putting down a thing where he's like, you can find peace with me if you go and be a peacemaker, or you can find peace with me if you go and be a uh, meek person, or if you go and be poor in spirit. No, no, no. He was saying peacemakers are sons of God. This is evidence that you are a son of God, the fact that you're going out and being a peacemaker. They had been changed by God, no longer the object of his judgment, but instead the object of his love. These become the very essence of a person's being who's been given peace with God through Jesus. These become who you are as a follower of Jesus. So when you look through these, this list of blesseds, all right, these, this list of beatitudes, you know that these are the evidence, these are the response of a person who's passionately following after Jesus. So when somebody walks up to you and they, they see these things going on, they actually see that you love God and you follow God. Why? Because a father, uh, sorry, a son does what his father does. A true son does what his father does, right? And who greater father to, to, to follow than God himself? So like father, like son, a son will go out and will be a peacemaker. And so it is an imperative. It's like an imperative. It's not like, a, here's a nice idea. If you want to take it on, maybe if that, that's your personality, then that's what you should do. No, no, no. He's saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, then this is what's going to ooze out of your life. This is what's going to come forth, being a peacemaker. It's a rarity. For some love to keep the peace, but not many want to make the peace. To make the peace means that some may disagree with you. Still others might hate you for speaking such truth. It's the peacemaker who may get bloodied amongst the war. You get that? So some go in, like I was thinking of army analogy, um, and if you're in the army, you'll do this better than me, but an army analogy is a peacekeeper will go in after the war to keep the peace, all right? The war's already happened. The, the, the damage has been done, and now they've come to a peace treaty or whatever they've done, and the peacekeepers go in and keep the peace. That's not who Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the ones who go in to make the peace. They're the ones in the thick of the war actually wanting to bring peace. There's a greater desire, there's a greater good going on here than just keeping the peace. All right, It's not a passive thing, it's not a sitting back thing. This is an intentional moving towards the war so that there might be peace. Now, again, this isn't a whole-scale country-versus-country peacemaking opportunity. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. I think that the thing that Jesus is getting at here is the fact that there's people at war with God. They're enemies with God. They're separated from God. And the greatest peace that they could ever know, the most fully alive they could ever be, is to have peace with God. And that's the one job of a disciple. The second job of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is that they would go and that they'd be investing in relationships where they know they're not at peace with a person or they know two other people are at war with one another and they can go in and somehow bring peace. There's a very intentional attitude about this. Now, Jesus had a disciple. Uh, he, thought, he thought that the best way to bring peace 
is by going to war. Uh, you might know the story. Whoa. You might know the story uh, in Luke chapter 22. Uh, and this is right where Jesus is about to go and be taken to trial and be crucified. And what happens is that the disciples were meant to be praying. Jesus was off praying. Disciples went to sleep. But suddenly here comes Judas in the night with all his, with all his gang fully kitted out. They had swords, they had daggers, they had everything they needed to take out this incredible enemy, Jesus, right? Because Jesus was an incredibly, like he had nuclear bombs and everything. Not, he didn't have nuclear bombs. He's a guy who's been praying on his knees, sweating blood. And they're coming to take him out with knives and swords as if he's going to come back at them. No, this was the crazy part. So Judas comes up and it says this, Luke 22. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, which was the symbol that he'd actually said uh, was going to be for them to, that was the one they were meant to capture. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? There's going to be a war, right? We'll pull the swords. We'll get the daggers out. We'll take them out. We'll, we'll fight with them, Jesus. We'll protect you. Like the disciples had good intention, right? They were thinking, we'll, we'll bring peace. We'll make sure that Jesus is well protected. And one of them, Peter, actually struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Can you put yourself in this situation? And this actually happened, right? Jesus is about to go off and be crucified. One of his disciples pulls out a dagger with great zeal and he's like, I'm going to protect you, Jesus. I'm going to be faithful to you till the end. And he comes in and he swipes and takes off the guy's ear. Can you imagine that there'd be shrill screams? This guy's not just standing there sort of stunned. That would be excruciating pain. So there's a guy screaming with pain that he's, he's lost his ear. Peter's sort of standing there, probably a bit stunned, going, uh, what, what now? Because there's a gang of them. Here's a couple of disciples and a gang of guys coming to get Jesus with swords and all sorts of weaponry. And here's what Jesus did. This is the most incredible part. And I think you actually get a picture of the type of peace that Jesus is bringing. Here's his enemies, the guys who are about to come and kill him. The guys who are going to lead him off to be slandered, the guys who are going to put a crown of thorns on his head. The guys who are going to work out the best way to make it the most painful way to die. Here they were, coming to get Jesus, his enemy. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Pause and think about this. Enemy, out to take Jesus out, to kill him, to put him to death. And Jesus goes, touches his ear and heals him in a great act of love. He wanted people to get that peacemaking doesn't come through the sword. In fact, he says to Peter, if you want to live by the sword, you're going to, have to die by the sword. That's what's going to happen. There's something more important at stake here. Jesus says there's something more important at stake here. This is a sweet example of the divine peacemaker at work. You see, he knew that the greatest war was not going to be fought with military hardware. With a crazy demonstration of peacemaking, Jesus reached out to his enemy and healed him in an act of outrageous kindness. Mercy to the very man who would take him to be slaughtered. It's this sort of outrageous peacemaking which Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. Not only this, but when Jesus brought peace to this local war, 
he went on to secure peace for all who would choose to believe in him. So he's saying there's a deeper war going on and it's not just the physical. It's not just the man against man. There's a war going on for people's souls, the internal, the very heart of a person. And he's saying, that's the war you want to win, boys. That's the war. That's the peace that I want you to bring. I want you to bring peace to men and women's hearts. And it's not going to come through a sword. This is why there's a promise at the end of this beatitude. When you bring peace, you're perfecting the image of the Father. Like I said before, as the old adage goes, like Father, like Son. You want to be like your dad? You want to follow God with your whole heart, your whole mind? Well, then you're going to be a peacemaker. It's part of who you become. This is your very identity. What stops one from being a peacemaker? I've identified uh, four peace stoppers today. All right, Four areas, four things in which I think people pull up and don't uh, be peacemakers. And this is only four. I'm sure there's many other reasons. The first of which is sloth. What's the first thing you think about when you think sloth? This is crowd interaction here. What's the first thing you think of when you think sloth? What was it? Sleep. Yep. Lazy, what did you say? Ice Age, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that crazy character in Ice Age. I, uh, that was exactly what I would be thinking as well. I was doing some reading uh, of, this, of this guy, Peter Kreeft, and he defines sloth in a very different way. Uh, let me read a quote for you. Of all the seven deadly sins, sloth is the most distinctively modern. Nothing so clearly distinguishes modern Western society from all previous societies as its sloth. That claim sounds absurd in view of the fact that we are busy, fussing, fidgety, anxious, fast-moving, success-worshipping, performance-oriented, Martha-type society, replete with ulcers, nervous breakdowns, and suicides. He sort of describes culture pretty well, yeah? But at least we are hard-working, right? With the grossest national product, how can anyone say we are lazy? Oh, here we go. I did not say we're lazy. I said we're slothful. St. Thomas defines sloth as sorrow about spiritual good or joylessness when faced with God as our supreme joy. I'll say that again. Sloth is sorrow about spiritual good. So there's something seriously good about having a soul at peace with God. But that brings sorrow to people. Like the greatest joy, the greatest good you could ever experience brings sorrow because it's like, I don't want to give up the good that I think I've got. I don't want to give up the, the joy that I've made, that, I, that I've worked hard for, when in fact it's the very thing that's making you less joyful. <clears throat> he keeps going. How does this happen? By robbing us of our appetite for God, our zest for God, our interest and enjoyment in God. Sloth stops us from seeking God, and that means we do not find Him. When Jesus said that all who seek find, he implied that those who do not seek do not find. Pascal put it this way, there's three kinds of people in the world, those who've sought God and found him and now serve him. The happiest people in all of history, right? Those who are seeking him but have not yet found him. Is that you today? Maybe you're like, I'm seeking God, but I haven't found him. Like I'm looking Uh, And I'm really searching around, but there's just something missing. I just haven't got it yet. And then there are those who neither seek him nor find him. 
The first are reasonable and happy. The second are reasonable and unhappy. And the third are unreasonable and unhappy. Those who neither seek God nor find him are unreasonable and unhappy. Here's where, here's where I think this, is, this impacts peacemaking. Because when you have no joy in God, and when you have no desire that there's actually greater peace than the temporary peace that uh, we sometimes think is peace, uh, when you have no appreciation for the, for, the, for the fact that God came and died and, and made sacrifice for your sins so that you'd be free, uh, you have no desire to go out and make peace with people. Can you see how peacemaking is actually rooted in the fact that we have peace with God and that in his incredible mercy and his great love, his passionate love for every single one of us here, he died so that our sins are no longer counted against us. But instead we actually find righteousness in God himself. That stops you. If you have no joy in that, that stops you from going and giving that joy to anybody else. So let sloth not be a peace destroyer, a peace stopper this Christmas. As you head into this season, the Prince of Peace came, not just so that you could have peace with God, but so that you could go and spread that peace and be a peacemaker. Not so you could be a joyless sloth, but instead to go and be a joyful peacemaker. Here's the second one. Number one was sloth. Number two is cheap peace. Cheap peace. Peace with God came at great cost. I've been asking, I was challenging my, uh, my daughter with this this week. Um, and I said to her, how much do you think it costs to get to heaven? What do you think it costs? And she's like, a uh, whole house. Uh, $5. I said, more. $150. More. $150 billion, $1,100. You know what? You remember that, Fees? Yeah. And, and I still challenged her. I was like, no, nah, no, nah, that's not how much it costs. Peace with God cost God his life. Pause, pause and just meditate on that for a moment. The peace that you enjoy with God, the forgiveness that you enjoy with God, the love and the mercy that you find in God comes at a great cost. Peace is not cheap. Peace is not just staying quiet and putting everything under the carpet. No, Jesus came and he brought everything out from under the carpet. <clears throat> cheap peace is short range peace true peace is not peace at any cost like at the cost of truth or justice or honesty, honesty or integrity many have forgone these only to find that in the end they have made peace with the world but forgotten peace with God which lasts into eternity Jesus is a clear example of this when confronted with evil injustice and temptation he did not simply make peace with it so it would go away do you get that? Like cheap peace just wants the stuff to go away. It doesn't actually deal with it, confront it, and actually bring peace into the hostility. Cheap peace is just like, oh, if I stay quiet long enough, it'll go away. And in doing so, you actually uh, forgo your integrity to truth. You forgo your integrity to morality. You go, forgo your integrity to God at the cost of having peace with another person just so that they're happy when indeed they're not the happiest they could actually be. Their greatest happiness is found with peace in God. Jesus is a clear example of this. Rather, he remained firm in obedience to doing God's will, even at the cost of opposition, slander, and his very own life. 
When we ourselves are involved in a quarrel, there will be either the pain of apologizing to the person we have injured or the pain of rebuking the person who's injured us. Sometimes there's the nagging pain of having to refuse to forgive the guilty party until he repents. Of course, a cheap peace can be bought by cheap forgiveness. But true peace and true forgiveness are costly treasures. God forgives us only when we repent. That's to turn away from the thing we did wrong and not keep doing it. Not keep going back to the toilet bowl. Drinking out of the toilet bowl because that's what sin ultimately is. It's disgusting in comparison to the joy found in the purity of God. Jesus told us to do the same. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. How can we forgive an inquiry when it's neither admitted or nor regretted? Or again, we may not be personally involved in a dispute, but may find ourselves struggling to reconcile to each other, two people or groups who are estranged and at variance with each other. So you get this, you've got two people at war, two people who are estranged from one another. There's been division because of some great deed that's happened or even maybe because of something they can't even remember happening, right? Here's these two people estranged from one another and you get caught up into it. Many find ourselves struggling to reconcile the two groups. In this case, there will be the pain of listening, the pain of ridding ourselves of prejudice, of striving sympathetically to understand both the opposing points of view and of risking misunderstanding, ingratitude or failure. Can you see what's going on here? There's cheap peace is not true peace. Cheap peace will never last. Cheap peace lasts for a little bit and then the, the whole war rears its ugly head again. True peace may end up forgiving multiple times. <clears throat> now, if you're... The, I mean, there was, there was the example here where it talked about going to the guilty party. So going to the person who sinned against you. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a peacemaker, what's your ultimate goal? Your ultimate goal is peace with that person. Your ultimate goal is not to get what you think you deserve. Do you see the difference there? It's not like you're going to them to show them what they did wrong so that they could get on their knees and, and, and ask for your forgiveness. No, what you want to actually bring is peace to the situation. Or maybe if you're the one who sinned against the other and they don't, they don't know, sorry, you're the one who's been sinned against and they don't know they've done the, the, the wrong thing. Your job as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus is to go with the desire for peace with the desire to actually reconcile the situation, which may not actually happen. May not actually happen. Not all peace is achieved straight away. I think about it this way. The greatest peace that ever came into this world came as a tiny embryo in a woman's stomach, in a woman's womb, and grew up to live his life, to die his death, and to rise again. What does that mean? That when you go and offer peace, if you go and do like, like your father to be a peacemaker, it's probably going to be little things that happen over time, bit by bit, that are actually going to mend and bring the peace. It may be a miraculous moment where God just comes and goes, bam, man, and there's peace with God and there's peace with each other and things are just transformed. But God doesn't always work like that. God sometimes works in the little tiny growth of little things over a long period of time. The continued love, the continued mercy, the continued patience that you have with a person 
with a, uh, with a situation to help bring reconciliation. Number one, sloth. Number two, cheap peace. Number three, self-rightness. This will be a peace destroyer. Pride, which makes you hold on to, and me, hold on to the right we have done and the great wrong that's been done to us so that no peace, either in us or in the circumstance, will ever be brought about. You know that when you don't reconcile, you know that when there's division between two people, uh, you know that the longer you hold on to your rightness, the longer you won't have peace in yourself. Now, that's not just a reason to go and make peace, all right? It's part of the reason, though, because when you go and make peace with someone, it actually brings peace amongst the whole relationship. It actually brings peace within your heart as well. Self-rightness never leads to peace. Self-rightness always leads to division, always leads to war amongst relationships. And the fourth one is forgetfulness. Here's why forgetfulness uh, is, <clears throat> is a peace stopper. Because when you are a peacemaker, when Jesus calls you and makes you his own and says you're going to be a peacemaker and you're going to be a happy peacemaker because that's who I've made you, you become a new person with a new heart, with new desires. When you go and you become a peacemaker, sometimes what you forget is who sent you to be a peacemaker and the fact that he's with you, right? Because sometimes when you go into situations, you start freaking out and getting all anxious and going, what if I don't have the right words to say? What if I don't, have the, the, uh, what if I don't know what to do when they really rear up and things get really serious? What if I go and I know I've done the wrong thing and I want to make peace with this person, but it's all going to turn south? What, what's going to happen then? And it actually pulls you back. And doubt and anxiety become your Lord. Doubt and anxiety become your master rather than the Lord who is your master going in with you to bring about the peace. And so I want to finish on that sort of note where to be a peacemaker, you must remember who sent you. It's the God, the author of all peace. The God who actually came down and made peace with the world. For all who would turn and follow him, for all who would come and say, yes, I want my life to be different and I want it to look like yours, God. I want true life, life that lasts into eternity. The God who authored that is the God who's with you as you go and start authoring some peace, bringing about peace in the world. <clears throat> Two Corinthians five eighteen says this: All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, going God making His appeal through us. You get that? So when you come and you follow Jesus, you become His ambassador going and making his God's appeal for peace with people, and he does it through you. Now, that's a great joy if you know that God's right there with you. That should be very exciting. How good is it when war ends and peace ensues? How good is it when there's no more fighting, when there's no more war, and that you could actually be a part of that? Not because you're great some peace hero, but because of the great peace hero working through you with incredible supernatural power. 
How is it that this becomes who you are? Well, it's far more than just a state of mind. It's a condition of your life. How is it that true peace will come through you? Only by acting on it will it come about. Thinking about it will be as good as nothing at all. Pondering it, observing it in another may be nice for a while, but to know it for yourself, you must act. For faith to be strengthened, it must be enacted. Jesus said it later in, in Matthew this way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 45. You've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is sort of what's going on right now, right? You shall love your neighbor, the people who are nice to you, but hate your enemy, sue the pants off them, get as much as you can out of them, right? That would be what people, the whispers in our ears. Now, is this at the expense of justice? No, it's not what Jesus is saying. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So how can you go and pursue peace with people? Well, first, I would encourage you to pray. The very people who you are opposed to or the very people who are opposed to you is something that only really God can change. First, he changes your own heart in praying for your enemies. There was no greater example for me than this uh, in today's terms, and this was a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. don't know if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot. She was a missionary. Uh, she only died in June this year, uh, but she was a missionary. Her and her husband, um, Jim Elliot, and they went into an uh, Orca tribe of Indians where no person had ever been before. Uh, and they were so passionately desperate to see these people come and know God and find peace with God. And, uh, and Jim Elliott went in with three of his mates or four of his mates. And uh, the moment they basically stepped into this Orca tribe, uh, this Orca tribe speared them to death. That was the end. Here's Jim Elliott. His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, is, uh, is somewhere else in the country. And uh, she's now mourning the death of her husband. And her prayer was, God, if there's any way for these people to find peace in you, here I am, use me. So at that point, she pulled up the bitterness. She pulled up the war that could have gone on in her own heart and said, God, use me to come and bring peace to these people in the Orca tribe. She found herself in a home uh, somewhere around the place where two Orca women uh, were actually uh, coming to that village and sat in that, that room with her and they actually invited her back to the tribe uh, where they actually killed her husband. And in she went for two years and ministered the gospel and served those people with great love. Now, what was the most incredible thing about this? And she said this, I don't want to be remembered as some great hero who, who went and forgave people. That's not the point. The point is there's this greater forgiveness. There's this greater peace that every person should have. I experienced it in the forgiveness of these people with my own husband. And I want every person to, to, experience that, to experience that. And that's what she went and did. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This Christmas, as you consider going and being a peacemaker, if you love Jesus, this is who you are. You see opportunities to make peace and you go in and you give it a red hot go knowing that there's a great God, the author of peace, going in with you to bring about the greatest joy in all people. Be a worker in one of the most blessed jobs this Christmas. A humble messenger, not forgetting 
who sent you nor his presence with you. If you've tasted the peace that comes from God, then it's your blessed duty to go and share it. As I was reading a book by the famous neurosurgeon Ben Carson this year, uh, his mother would always say to him, Benny, God gave you a brain, go and use it. God gave you a brain, so go and use it. And that's what I wanted you to, to encourage you with this morning. You might be right now thinking of one person who you know you're not at peace with. And in your heart, God has said to you, you're a peacemaker and you need to go and make peace with these people. Now, does that mean you'll achieve peace every time? No, but your desperate desire is that God would bring peace in this situation. And so this morning, I encourage you, as you leave this place, as you walk out of this place, don't walk out and forget it because God could do absolutely miraculous stuff this Christmas. God could do absolutely miraculous stuff through you, his ambassador, today, this week, this month. So I encourage you to write down the name of that one person and think. God gave you a brain to think. Think about how could peace come to this situation? How could peace come to this situation? And let me encourage you, where you say this is impossible, peace could never come to this situation. How could this ever happen? Well, God seems to be the God who actually enters into the impossible and seems to work out things and make them possible, right? So when you see the impossible, you should be like, yes, this is where God's going to do cool stuff because it seems impossible to me. I'm like Moses here. I don't have the words to say. I'm a mumbling, stumbling, I don't know what. Like, I don't know how I'm ever going to say the right thing. But that's where God just goes in and goes, all right, I'm going to use you. going to use you. The second thing is if you're not at peace with God this morning. And I encourage you to come out of here this morning and write down, use your brain and think, write down why it is that you're not at peace with God. Why is it that there's a God, the almighty God of the universe, who comes and makes peace with you through the death of a man called Jesus? Why is it that you don't make peace with him? And I'm going to encourage you to actually go and talk with somebody about that. So write it down and actually go and talk with a Christian, talk with someone who follows God so that you can be not the one who doesn't seek and find God, but the one who's seeking and hasn't yet found. Because there's a great happiness, there's a great joy that's to be found in coming to know God. This Christmas we celebrate the God who came in a small package but brings the deepest peace. He's here. He's here. He dwells in the heart of everyone who believes. And I hope that you sense that call. I hope that you sense the joy of going and being a peacemaker. Because you'll be called a child of God. You'll be called a child of God.